This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of Meaningful Sport. Welcome back to the second part of our conversation with Professor Riley Dionigi from Charles Sturt University on understanding sport participation in later life. In the first part, we already started covering um, a lot of topics. We looked at the shifting social discourse surrounding aging. We talked about different sport participants' experiences in in World Master Games and other events and how experiences are shifting as the discourses are also shifting. And so now we'll take the conversation and continue from there. So welcome back to the podcast, Riley. And uh, maybe we could take it from here. In the first part, we talked about, um, you first mentioned this aging as decline was the dominant social discourse around aging when you started out this research 20 years ago. But now we have all these new discourses. We have active aging, we have successful aging, and so forth. So maybe you could talk us through some of the strengths of these new ideas surrounding aging, but also what are the problems and what are the critiques uh, of these ideas? Mm. I, I guess on the one hand, the strength of these discourses is that it opens up another way to think about aging. So while we dominantly thought or predominantly thought about aging as decline, as disengagement, then those theories also, you know, are, are problematic, but they are real in the sense that aging is a physiological process of decline. We can't deny that. And aging is universal. I mean, that's a point that I make in that everyone makes, you know, aging is universal, but we each age uniquely. And so by having these discourses of successful aging, active aging, healthy aging, aging well, desired aging, it's showing that there's other ways to think about aging and it's not all necessarily negative, which is what I might have grown up thinking that ageing was all downhill. So it's opened up that idea to say, and that is really good, I found, for, you know, young people to see that ageing isn't always declined. So for young people to see older athletes, it can say, oh, okay, so there's different ways of ageing. And, you know, and for older, for younger people to see someone cooking or someone writing poetry, they're all valued and different ways of ageing and enjoying leisure in later life. So I think those discourses help see that there's not just one way of understanding ageing. But at the same time, I can be critical and others are critical of these um, these new sort of, when I say new, they've been around for you know, 20 years, but they're getting more and more dominant of this successful ageing, healthy ageing 
um, they all come with biases because personally I just want to understand I don't really like to use, although I have in my research, I don't like to use these, I guess, labels because I like to understand the experience of ageing from the person that I'm speaking to or the experience of later life as it's defined by the individual or the group that I'm interacting with. So just simply understanding their experience um, of ageing or later life. So, for example, the successful ageing discourse I'm quite critical of in my research that, and the reason is it, like healthy aging, active aging, it can be quite limiting because success or how success is defined is dependent on the researcher, the discipline area or the older person themselves. So you can't really um, define successful aging. It has to come from, you know, the individual. How do they define success? So Rowan Kahn's definition, although it was useful, it was also um, limited and narrow and it, it also implies that if someone has you know limited activity or limited social networks then they can't be successfully aging but what we find is that people who may have chronic conditions and may be quite sedentary they still might feel within themselves that they're aging successfully because they're doing what they want um, at that point in their lives which for example it might be writing their memoirs or something like that. That's just an example off the top of my head. But what I'm saying is there's so many different ways to age successfully that we can't just have, you know, one definition and it comes with biases. And the same goes for healthy ageing and active ageing. They've been taken up a lot in policy. And while they have, again, those good intentions to say, you know, you can age healthily and you can um, age actively, it's about saying, okay, what does that mean to the individual? And we don't want to have these policy agendas that say everyone should be active as they age or this is how we understand being healthy in later life. You've got to take responsibility for your health. That's fine to a degree, as I said before, for those that can have the means, ability and desire. But we've also got to, as a, as a society, we've got to create and the conditions which enable people to make those choices to be active because without those um, socio-cultural and living arrangements and all those conditions and resources that enable someone to be active, then we can't expect them to be active. So the, another way to think about the active ageing discourse, I read an interesting article where it was talking about how we tend to think of active ageing as keeping physically active as we age. But this it was an interesting article on how active ageing can mean actively taking part in the decision-making of your ageing and in this case of your funeral arrangements or your financial arrangements later in life. So active was defined as actively engaged in decision-making about their own life or death. And that is was a fascinating read to me because I thought you, we just tend to think active ageing, physically active as you age. And this was saying actively engaged mentally and um, so that's just an example of how there's so many different ways that it can be defined. And I encourage researchers and students and practitioners, if you're using these terms, make sure you're clear on how you're using them. So it's not to say you can't use them, but if you're speaking these words in, in your practice or if you're writing these terms in your papers, I encourage you and would you know would like everyone to sort of define it how they're understanding it or acknowledge that there's different ways how it, you know this 
phrase successful aging can be understood in this context or how it was explained by the participants or how you might define it so then it's clear that to a reader or to if you're working with someone that this is one way of defining it but there's multiple ways because I think it's really important to highlight what it means um, to the individual and to highlight your own biases if you're a practitioner or if you're writing about it does that Mm -hmm. make sense yeah it makes a lot of sense and with the successful aging discourse you then have the flip side that there's failed aging Mm. on the other hand and I wonder because in the previous part we discussed all these different experiences that masters athletes have in the sport I'm wondering in terms of some of them are not everybody quite serious quite competitive and we know that with this quite strenuous sport participation you also get the downside of all the injuries and you might get some health problems from overtraining and and all these things. So is this then like a failed? We know that from the research on injury in sport, usually with young athletes, they might get like some period of low mood and so forth. So do you also see these uh, stories from, from athletes that when they are quite serious in sport and maybe they've been successful in the past with their sport, there might be then also these injuries or other health problems and this can be then quite putting them down. Yeah, I've definitely noticed that can be a, a bit of a trend but and I guess that ties into the area that I would like to look more into because I've had hints of people who, because I was I've always interviewed those that are currently active So I haven't really done much on those that, you know, have injured and stopped. But in those conversations, there would be periods where they had to stop for a while due to injury or ill health. And in those athletes talking about that, there would definitely be that idea of, you know, I can't run as fast as I used to or lamenting their past self, I guess you could say, and how that made it difficult um, for them. And some some came to accept that I'm still participating and that's the main thing others said I think I'm going to actually stop because I can't compete as I once used to and I'm not enjoying it anymore so that did that kind of ties into into this and the point you made about when there's a successful aging then yeah it also leads to that again that dichotomy of unsuccessful aging or failed aging and and it opens up that door which goes back to that good and bad ways to age and links with that moral agenda so I guess we've got to be careful because another thing that you hear a lot is masters athletes represent successful aging and there's been articles written written on that and even PhD students that I've been involved in supervising have have argued that as well and I've encouraged them to think about that as a question, not to say um, Masters athletes represent successful ageing, but, you know, to what extent do Masters athletes represent successful ageing? Because, as you said, there might be a lot of benefits and often the benefits of sport for older people are are what's highlighted in research and often the the other side, um, like the injuries or the um, pushing yourself um, beyond, you know, your capabilities or not accepting um, that you can no longer, you know, continue in this. And I, I don't mean to put a dampener on every of all on all of it, but often that side is forgotten in research and not um, discussed as much. And it's not as common. I mean, obviously the benefits weigh out 
might outweigh um, those factors, but it's something that needs to be recognised. And I think it's when you in the sport and exercise science discipline, which is where I'm situated. So I'm, I guess, a critical voice in the sport and exercise science discipline because in my discipline there's a lot of push for everyone to be active as they age and to create physical activity programs and to have sporting and activity interventions, which is really good. But because there's that agenda to um, really fascinating and wanting everybody to play sport or exercise or physical activity, which can obviously have benefits, there is also a lot of emphasis on these are the benefits of sport, therefore everyone should do it. Whereas I argue that, yes, um, you know, these benefits are possible, but we also need to remember this can also lead to some negative outcomes. And not only for the individual, but more broadly, my work looks at the pros and cons or the positives and negatives of what this phenomenon of older people in sport can mean culturally and, um, you know, for society. And what does it say about ageing? And what does it say about sport, like we discussed at the beginning? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I think it's a, it's a big, yeah, it's a big thing to, to think about and study. And I understand that everyone has their niche area and it all fits together. But I guess I tend to look at it a bit more holistically. And we discussed a long time already looking at experiences and discourses and so forth. But actually, we didn't talk that much about your methodology and, and the conceptual framings that you use. So I think this will also be interesting for our listeners. Some of them are uh, researchers themselves. So, Well, as I mentioned, I, uh, I'm a critical voice in the social sciences. So I guess it's It's critical sociology um, of sport, I guess, generally, but it's also qualitative research. So I tend to do in-depth interviews, observations, focus groups, you know, talking and interacting um, with, with older athletes or active older people. So that's my method of data collection and is very qualitative and then, you know, thematic analysis. But in terms of the methodology and theoretical frame, I tend to, in the past, I it was labelled more post-structural frame and by that I just mean that it was a way that I could show that through their words and actions they were simultaneously resisting discourses and stereotypes about ageing and sport and that's why I just used that post-structural frame because it allowed me to say on one hand older athletes are very empowered and, and having all the, experiencing all these benefits On the other hand, this also shows that it can uh, buy into, you know, fear of ageing um, and those sorts of things. So that post-structural framework allowed me to to do that and look at those resistance and empowerment simultaneously. So I guess that's kind of been my main um, methodology. Within that, can I, yeah, within that sort of broad frame and, and interpretive um, phenomenology kind of framework of, is I can then um, certain papers and certain analysis, I might pull on a different framework, but it's my all my research takes a qualitative, it is within the qualitative paradigm. But, for example, I've written um, using slightly different uh, frameworks, one on a sense of community, and I talked about how I used the psychological sense of community framework, which, but I looked at it because I'm coming from more sociology, I looked at that within the broader sociocultural context of master sport and analyze 
how are athletes experiencing this psychological sense of community where they feel connected and relating with like-minded people but looking at that within the within the broader context of you know sport in western society and how we view aging um, that's just one example of how you can use different frameworks and often it's after i collect the data i see oh this really speaks to this framework or this framework helps make sense of this data so sometimes i would and particularly when i first started because there weren't many people researching this topic back in 2000 so i was drawing on research that had looked at other marginalized groups in sport like women in sport people with disabilities in sport and that's where I got the post-structural framework from because a lot of writers were saying this is how women experience sport and this resistance and empowerment dynamic that I was fascinated with and I could see oh this is this could help explain the data I'm collecting about older people so as researchers if you if it is a new topic and you're not really sure um you know which way you want to go and you are a qualitative researcher you can you know start broad and collect data and then when you're analyzing the data you know you so that's kind of exploratory design when you're analyzing data you see these themes and then because you're well read and you've read on your topic you can then say oh this framework here about or sense of community or about um sense of belonging or whatever theory you want to use can help explain um this data and then that becomes the framework of a theoretical framework within your broader qualitative study. Yeah, these new topics in terms of not many people doing that and having that quite exploratory approach. Yeah, that clearly clearly makes sense. And it was interesting you mentioned that you could maybe 20 years ago you could think of master athletes being a marginalized group in terms of yeah the aging as decline and how they were more framed but now as we discussed now the master athletes are more like these exemplar individuals yeah yeah and in some cases becoming the expectation rather than the you know the expectation and the norm rather than the exception because when i started it was sort of the except, exception you know oh you don't you're not really active like look at these and now it's like this expectation for every, not not to be elite athletes or highly mm. competitive i'm just speaking about physical activity and physically active leisure has become sort of something that we tend to expect um particularly in western nations and and first um you know developed nations i should say so that and again that comes with positives and negatives as i pointed out earlier so it's about being mindful of yes there are these ways to age but respectful of the fact that there are multiple ways of aging and people may age well or age successfully through not physical activity at all, at all because it is really when we think about it just one leisure activity amongst many so mm-hmm. you know it seems it's quite strange that we value that over playing a musical instrument or you know another type of leisure activity it's not that um you know and i talk about that in one of my edited books how it so although that i see the value in creating opportunities for physical activity it's also about creating other opportunities for different types of leisure whether that's sedentary or otherwise whether that's solitude and solitude or in groups and not valuing a particular way of aging yeah You've been critiquing policy, but also the way that uh, sport and exercise science or our discipline, how 
how it's framing physical activity and promoting this uh, leisure sport with older adults. So if I kind of get your message right, you would like to see a much more diverse, open approach in terms of physical activity, sport being one way of, but not not the thing that everybody must be doing that we talked about the normative framing already right mm. yeah that's right because in the in the sport and exercise sciences you know sport and physical activity is framed as that self-responsibility of health and keeping active across the life course and and the, while that can be good these messages do tend to speak to those usually white middle class not just white but middle class resources people have and I don't want to say privilege, but it is people who have the means, ability and desire, as I said, and they usually already are active. So they kind of, those discourses speak to speak to those people and of those people, which can leave out a lot of older people who may be yeah, poor, ill, inactive. So I guess it's um, it's about, as, as you said, and as I've said before, creating opportunities for people to age well and age successfully in many different ways and with many different leisure pursuits and and passions. Yeah. Applied practice is not your key focus, but you've been involved a little bit in work in terms of what could it look like? What are the considerations for, for example, coaching with master and veteran athletes and some listeners are practitioners as well? And I've also heard that nowadays um, for sports psychology practitioners as well, master athletes are like a growing group of clients. They might, you mentioned that they are more often from a more privileged background, so they might have the finances as well if they want to work with a sports psychologist and so forth. So maybe just a few words when it comes to coaching and applied practice, what would be some of your thoughts around it? Yeah, I have um, written a chapter recently with Canadian colleagues and their area of expertise is coaching adult and master athletes. And what I guess the key finding generally and is I guess you've, you've just got to really know your athlete and really address their needs and, and not go in with those assumptions of, oh, they're an older athlete, therefore they'll like this. So again, it's just, about you know understanding the person you're working with putting them at the center of your practice and having that collaborative approach as opposed to oh you're the expert you can you know what they need it's about working with um older adults and and getting you know they're they're an expert of their life and their sporting needs you're an expert of maybe programming how can you work together to address each other's needs i mean that's speaking very generally and the book chapters um that i've written in community sport coaching that has you know more nitty-gritty of examples but generally in a nutshell it's about listening to the older person and respecting their needs and then working with them to to meet those needs and that not only goes for coaching and athletes it goes for working with older people in leisure and health more broadly and I guess it's that person person-centered or um, relationship oriented approach or collaborative approach where which is opposed to the expert biomedical model of that is traditionally how you would you know work well I guess the dominant understanding of working with older people came from that biomedical model and so now we're seeing the more person-centered model 
and that um, sort of cultural shift in how can we work with individuals. So I, I guess I'd encourage practitioners to find ways where they can put the older person at the centre of their leisure or sporting needs and how then they can work with that person to address um, those needs. That's you know, one way of thinking about it. But it's also important, as I said before, about um, avoiding biases and assumptions of how certain you know, ways of ageing, like successful ageing, active ageing are understood and, and listening and working together so that it comes from the perspective of you know, the individual who's actually ageing. And the other thing that you might find, I guess, a challenge in this field of working with older people, whether it's in sport, whether it's in health, whether it's um, in leisure, is that there is more of, you mentioned before, a neoliberal society and this push for marketization and profit and, you know, I guess a, a corporate model in, in the health industry is that people are putting um, profit ahead of care. Now, I know we're not talking about healthcare per se, but it kind of is the same in terms of if you're coaching somebody, you're working with them and caring for them. If they're a client of yours, you know, you're working with them. So you don't want to be focused on whatever you need to do to be more efficient for an organisation. You want to focus on what that individual needs and how you can help them. And sometimes that's really hard in certain organisations where there's certain cultural structures already in place and you, if you're someone who's recently come out of university or a practitioner who's trying to do this person-centred model and focus on the athlete, it can be very hard because you're resisting outdated policies or structures that actually aren't aimed towards um, a person-centred approach, particularly if you're working in organisations that have a more uh, biomedical understanding of ageing. So I guess that's something from a practical standpoint um, to keep in mind. Yeah, I think an important step for us is to understand what are the tensions, what are the problems, and then we can start working towards some <laughs> yeah and you can't do it as you can't do it alone either that's the other thing like no. working in you know in in groups and organizations and there's the policy level there's the organization level there's the individual level there's a the cultural level so it's it's a big task and so working in teams and and working with people at all different levels is going to I guess lead to that way of thinking about ageing more broadly and understanding and accepting that there's multiple ways of ageing and how can we support these different ways of ageing. Mm-hmm. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, it's been such an interesting conversation. You mentioned some of your future directions. So, for example, looking at this disengagement from master sport, and I'm curious about what what that looks like and it's not something that's been studied. So what are some of the other things that we can expect from you and and your colleagues in the next few years in this area? I think there's still, as I said, I still would like to write up the the data from the World Masters Games in New Zealand and comparing that to Torino. I think, as I mentioned before, that's that different cultural context and different country and different viewpoints I thought was fascinating and worth worth writing about I've taken different directions because I'm I'm playing more of a mentor role later in my career I'm more overseeing and working with um, other projects where I'm not necessarily the lead but I'm working on teams so that might not necessarily so you might see some work coming out with my name on it that's not necessarily in with older people in sport however that's still something that I'm always collecting data on and always writing about 
because, for example, I was just talking to a group of participants that have a in my local town here who have a cycling group. And I know there's been some research on cycling groups um, that has come out recently. And so I know that I have a participant pool here because the community I live in is actually a retirement community. And there's a lot of older people around here that I interact with on a daily basis and who I could collect data from. It's kind of a professional and personal thing that I've got to manage because, you know, I'm meeting people all the time. But I know that I can collect data um, from people in this community. And, yeah, so cycling is one. Also there's... In terms of passive leisure, there's another group that play bridge, the card game, and I know there's research coming out around that as well. So there's so many different areas that I could go in. And as I said, some studies, we've collected recent qualitative data on sport and physical activity in regional and rural Australia during um, COVID and how people feel about sport and exercise, but not necessarily older people. There are people of diverse sexual orientation and gender identity in rural areas. So we've got a paper on that coming out. Women and health and not necessarily older women, just adult women and health in rural New South Wales. So there's lots of little studies um, like that. And in terms of injury, um, I've done had a PhD student who's looked at uh, injuries in um, psychological return to sport after injury. Again, not necessarily older people, but... So my areas are broad and I've found that lately I've been working on, yeah, more broader things. So, but that's also exciting, you know, because it means that I'm always learning and I'm always publishing in in different areas. But everything does come back to that qualitative approach that I mentioned earlier. So it just shows you that you can have this kind of critical qualitative approach that can be used across different areas in sport and exercise um, science. So hopefully that gives <laughs> listeners, you know, ideas of that you don't have to li- limit yourself. Maybe if you're building a career path, you do. But then I guess the good thing about being um, once you've established a career path or a, a certain research agenda, you can spread more broadly and cover different topics. So, yeah, so who knows what to expect from me? <laughs> <laughs> watch, watch this space. <laughs> Yeah, I will certainly do. And you mentioned it wasn't so many people working in this space, but now we do have much more. And my main field is sports psychology. And now you see more of these book chapters and articles coming out also in relation to master sport, which was certainly not the focus in the more psychological research. It's been even slower than sociology. So I think it's very nice kind of seeing all these developments, all the new research that is coming out. So we are living exciting times also in in relation to this this research topic yeah uh, yes I agree because when I started it was there wasn't much as you said on sport in the psychology literature or in the sociology literature not much on sorry not on sport on older people in in that literature and as you say it's become a lot more common now and it, it is it's and it's really nice to hear you say that you're a sports psychologist psychologist because you also sound like a support sociologist. You're very across all the, you know, the socio-cultural side as well. And that's what I find fascinating too, that crossover between the, the you know, in, within the social sciences. And that's why sometimes I can see those crossovers as well between the psychological and the socio-cultural. And it sounds like you do the same thing in your work. So I really like that that space. And it's good to know that it is 
becoming more common in sports psychology, but also that sports psychologists have an understanding of the, the sociocultural context as well as the needs of, of the people they're working with. Yeah. So it's really good. Yeah, mm, yeah we, we need to have these interdisciplinary approaches and dialogues. Mm, yeah, I agree. And even across the biomedical and the sociocultural, even though I sounded like I might have been critiquing the biomedical, we need both. Aging is physiological and biomedical as well as it is sociological and psychological. So it's that holistic view of aging that that I take and it sounds like you do too. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much. It's been a wonderful conversation, lots of ideas. I will link a few of your articles in in the show notes for the podcast so the listeners can go and and read uh, a bit more of, of your work. So thank you so much for the conversation today. Uh, thank you. Thanks for having me and I hope it was useful. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Research Through Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcast or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.